You're listening to the Speechy Side Up podcast, episode number 31. Today I am joined by the New York Times bestselling author, Laura Numeroff. In this episode, we discuss where she finds inspiration, her new books, and the top five things aspiring children's book writers should focus on doing. You're listening to the Speechy Side Up podcast. This podcast will cover the flip side of traditional speech and language therapy, so you get inspired and learn from experts in the field. Here is your host, author, AAC specialist, and matcha tea lover, Vanita Litvak. She and her guests are serving up some informative and fun topics in Speechy Side Up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow us on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. So it turns out if you give an author a cookie, they agree to do a podcast interview. We are absolutely thrilled to introduce today's guest, the number one New York Times bestselling author, Laura Numeroff. Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, God, it is absolutely my pleasure. And um, I was going to ask you, do you hear my sibilant S? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, but I'm not that good with articulation and phonological disorders. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's good. I'm so excited to be doing this. So uh, just for everybody who's listening, we reached out to Laura on Twitter a long time ago, and we're totally, you know, just... We always talk about like if you have something in mind that you want to do, just go for it. And uh, the fact that we got a response and now we're doing this interview is just absolutely amazing. And we know a lot of our listeners read your books uh, because most of them are speech language pathologists and educators. So let's paint a picture for our listeners about your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do today, and how you got there? Do we have more than an hour? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll give you all the time you need. Okay. Uh, Let's see. I was born in 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And I have two older sisters, 10 and 12 years older than I am. And my dad was an artist and my mom was a home economics teacher. She taught junior high school kids how to cook. And all the food she made was awful. Even (laughs) hamburgers, cheese. They were like hockey pucks. And um, I grew up in a very idyllic household with books and music, piano. My dad and I would play piano, you know, duets together. And um, I was going to museums all the time. He would, my dad would take me bird watching. Very um, cultural and educating kind of a background. And my parents taught folk dancing in the basement. I was very, very, very lucky. And when I was eight, I started writing my own stories because I loved to read. I was an avid, avid reader. And then I started writing my own stories. And um, excuse me, the first one I wrote was about a horse named Trixie who goes to Macy's to go shopping. And then I would do little illustrations. And I knew when I was eight that I wanted to be a children's book author. But when I was 15, my older sister, um, who became a fashion designer, I was idol—I I idolized her. I just loved everything about her, and we're still super duper close friends. And I decided 
I wanted to be a, uh, a fashion designer. And so I applied to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where she went. And my first year of fashion design, I realized I hated it. I couldn't sew and I was miserable. And luckily, uh, they had, um, they let me what they would call non-matriculate where I could just take classes and things that I liked. And I tried photography and animation. And then my senior year, I needed two credits to graduate. And I looked in a catalog to find something super easy. And I thought I would do, I would take Tai Chi. And my guidance counselor looked at my records and said, you need studio credits, which meant I needed to take an art class. So I skimmed through the catalog to try to find something super easy. And I found writing and illustrating books for children. So I took the class. We had a homework assignment. This was in 1975. We had a homework assignment and to do our own book. And I wrote and illustrated a book called Amy for Short about the tallest girl in the class and brought the homework in and everybody was critiquing it. And the teacher thought it was really good. And that's all I needed to hear. And in those days in, in New York City, you could take a portfolio, an illustration portfolio, up to um, the publishers. And I had meetings with art directors. And the fifth meeting was at Macmillan Books. And the art director loved Amy for short. He brought it into the editor. And the next thing I knew, I graduated Pratt with a diploma and a contract for my first book from Macmillan for a whopping $500 advance. <laughs> I mean, what an amazing story. I did read that story. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear that too. And I thought, well, oh, great. I just sold a book. I'll sell. Oh, that's what I'll be doing. I'll just keep selling books. And it's not that easy. Um, you know, bunch of things that I submitted were rejected, but I, I did end up selling, doing nine books that I illustrated, uh, all the while being fired from a lot of part-time jobs and um, borrowing money from my parents, who were really nice about all that. And then, let's see, at that point, I had moved out to the coast. I was living in San Francisco, and I don't know if your listeners might recognize the song Sister Christian by a band called Night Ranger. And I was living with the drummer and we would make frequent trips from San Francisco up to Eugene to visit his parents. And on one of those trips, I was getting so bored that I started to think of funny things to amuse myself. And I pictured a mouse nibbling on a cookie and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. The whole story came to me by the time uh, we got to his parents' house. I had, at that time, a $50 typewriter with a wonky W. We came home to San Francisco. I typed it out in two hours, and I sent it to Harper and Rowe, which I always wanted to be published with because they did Stuart Little. Mm. And I got a rejection letter. And I sent it out nine more times. And then this is in the old days when, you know, snail mail, you had to wait. So it took forever. Now I can get an email rejection the next day. I've literally been rejected. 
I, I literally got four rejections in one email from one editor. <laughs> and then I ran into her at a big book convention and she introduced herself. And I, it was all I could do to say anything nasty. You know, I know who <laughs> found four of my books for crying out loud. Anyway, back to Mouse Cookie. Um, I heard that the editor who turned it down at Harper and Row was uh, a new editor and her name was Laura. And I sent it to her, and it was the summer that I had broken up. I had my heart broken by Mr. Night Ranger, Sister Christian fame. Oh, no. And I decided to move to Los Angeles because I thought I, would, I wanted to be a sitcom writer. I was staying with my friend, miserable, and then um, got a phone call from Laura Geringer at Harper, and they bought If You Even Mouse a Cookie. And that was in 1985. And it wasn't sold as a series. Because one of the rejection letters I got was uh, a big publishing house saying that they didn't do series. Which hindsight, I guess she wasn't being very (laughs) thoughtful of what could happen. But um, Mouse Cookie kind of just did its own little thing. I had no book signings. They didn't do much publicity. And in the meantime, I started doing school visits, you know, talking to kids in elementary schools. And I read, if you give a mouse a cookie and the teacher came up and she said, that's a really good circular story. And I asked her, what is a circular story? Cause I had not sat down to write intentionally to start from the beginning and go back to the end. And luckily, it took off, and then they did moose, if you give a moose a muffin, and then if you give a pig a pancake, and that was going to be it. But they all did so well that I then got a contract for another um, six books, and that was big pressure. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Really daunting. Um, Yeah, and If You Give a Mouse a Brownie was the last of the series, and that was two years ago or something. Okay. Do you think it's really the last, or do you think there will be more? No, I know it's the last. Okay. um, It did get... So in the interim, you know, I I had a TV agent, or I have a TV agent trying to sell it to make it into an animated show, and all kinds of really amazing people were interested in it, like Tom Hanks's production company, um, the Hensons. I met with the Hensons sisters, who were so nice. I really was hoping that they were going to do it. Um, DreamWorks, you know, all the those names that you hear band, bandied around about um, for cartoons, and nobody could figure out what to do with it because it's a it's a circular story, and they didn't know how they could do something with that. Long story short, eventually Amazon was interested, and it is now a, the first season was nominated for an Emmy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I got to go to the Emmys, which was a lot of fun, and then they picked up a second season. They're working on a second season now, and the best part is the guy who does the moose does mouse. So when I go to recordings, I get to watch, you know, I get to watch the actors, the voice actors, uh, 
say the words that I helped to write. Not a lot of it, but I did some writing. That is so cool. So Amazon, it's in their store. And is it, it's obviously for children. Amazon has like a children's channel, don't they? So is yes, that where it is? Yes. yes. And I just thought of some, I have met this adorable little boy with autism, Dashiell, and I get to visit him every Saturday at his house and we play games and I bring him a book every week and one of my books, I give him one of my books every week and we read. But his favorite game to play, and I know in the autism community, memory is a big thing. And he loves this game called Memory Match, where you put the cards face down, and then you pick two up, and then if they don't match, you put them back. And then if you find one, you try to find the one that you think you saw before that matches it. Oh, yeah. And I have always hated that game. (laughs) (laughs) And it's his favorite. (laughs) It's all he ever wants to play. But the funny thing is, one of the first things um, that Amazon is doing is a memory match game with the mouse. Oh my gosh, how ironic. (laughs) (laughs) He even sent me, uh, he he made a Christmas card for me. Dear Laura, thank you for coming over and playing games and playing a game that you don't like. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Maybe you guys have to switch off. Like one time he has to play a game that you prefer, and then the next time you play, you know, the memory match again with him. Yes, actually, I, uh, we do that. And the game that I like is Candyland. Yeah, so we get to play Candyland. <laughs> um, and so I that's kind of where who I am, I think, if there's, I mean, there's lots of stuff in between, but maybe you can let me know what you're interested in finding out. Yeah, that was, that's, I love your story. And it just really shows that if you have, you know, something that you're passionate about and you feel it in your gut, just go for it. And I think that, you know, a lot of people realize that a little too late in life. So I'd love that you pursued your passion. And like you said, I mean, the first advance was $500. And I mean, that's pretty typical, I think. You know, that was like similar for us, um, but that you still was, kept going. Yeah, no, that was a lot of money um, in those days for me. And I remember calling my parents from in a, going into a phone booth in Manhattan and calling my parents, um, you know, who live, I was living in Brooklyn at the time and, um, and, and screaming out loud about my first contract. So that's it amazing. was really exciting. Yeah, and the thing about if you give a mouse cookie is that it was turned down nine times, and so I always tell kids never give up. You right. know, like what if? Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a great lesson because I think, like for instance, um, you know, I told you that we had a book published, and we often tell people. I mean, we got one rejection. Thankfully, we got lucky the second time around. But we were like, oh, maybe we should like just stop. And then I was like, no. <laughs> when I went, when I applied to grad school, I applied to twelve different places, and then you know, one ended up being a good match. So it's like, you just have to put it all out there and let the universe kind of take over. Yeah, absolutely. You got it. You sold it on the second. We did. I We're lucky that that happened. It was six months after we waited for the first rejection. Uh, I think the one that we did the first time around was snail mail too. They were more of like a traditional 
publisher and so we had to wait six months and like the very last week before they said that would be the cutoff is when we got the first rejection and we're like oh man but it was our fault because we decided to just apply to you know just to submit it to one publisher first off and then thankfully I was able to talk him into just submitting it to everybody else after that oh my god you waited six months we waited six months yep oh, I can't even stand six six weeks I know so but I mean it's nothing compared to like what you've accomplished and so I think people are really interested in how you find inspiration in writing your books well let's see I uh, I I get ideas in different ways Um, I was with uh, a friend of mine Actually, <laughs> this is all about my exes. It was the one that <laughs> that I uh, had Sydney with, and um, he was an environmental science consultant. Oh. And walking, and I saw a Dalmatian, and I just said, "Oh, I think that would look cute. He would look cute in red high top sneakers." Just the image. So, like, I see something, and I get an image, and that just clicked and all of a sudden I just start and oh and he said dogs don't wear sneakers and I just started going dogs don't wear sneakers and pigs don't wear hats and dresses look silly I'm Siamese cats and it just came to me and we I came back to my office or home where my office was and I started typing the verses and I was having so much fun that I actually ended up with enough verses for two different books. So the first one is Dogs Don't Wear Sneakers, and then the second one is called Chimps Don't Wear Glasses. <laughs> so I got from seeing a Dalmatian and thinking of saying it would look cute in sneakers. And um, I was on a plane, and I, liked, I, I did a lot of, I illustrated my first nine books. Um, but I, and I also like to sketch and I was flying home and doing some sketching and I drew a little boy in a sweater and I started filling in the stripes on his sweater. Each stripe had a different pattern. And by the time it was finished, I just thought that is so ugly. And it just reminded me of, uh, getting something from your grandmother, you know, that you can't return or you have to wear. And I wrote a book called The Ugliest Sweater. Um, and Beatrice Doesn't Want To, which is one of my favorite books. It's about a little girl who hates books. She hates reading. Um, and she doesn't want to go to the library with her brother Henry because he has to babysit for her, uh, for his mom, and take her to the library while he's doing his report on dinosaurs. And that idea I got from a sketch I did of a little girl and I thought she looked like a little brat. She was just really <laughs> annoying. She just looked really annoyed. And then I, it just came to me, that, that, that idea. Um, and that was a funny one because when you're the illustrator, you get to put in things that you can just throw in things like people's names or I can um, name the title of a book that's on the floor where it shouldn't be. And so I like to draw cats. Not realistic looking cats, but you know, cards, uh, my kind of cats. And I wrote the book of cats and I put my girlfriend's name as the author 
And when I gave her a copy of the book, she looked at it and she said, you spelled my name wrong. <laughs> and so it was Brenna, not Brenda. Oh, no. <laughs> and then in her room, she's got a piggy bank that says Atlantic City because I spent a summer um, right outside of Atlantic City and got to run the merry-go-round on the steel pier. So I, I, you can put in little things like that. That's the best part about being an illustrator. Yeah, that's such a great point. And that must have been so fun to illustrate your own book. But I'd like to talk now about some of your other books that you've written. I know most of our listeners are probably familiar with your If series, like If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. But what other books would you like to share that we might not be as familiar with? I did a book called If You Give a Man a Cookie. came out two years ago. Uh, if you give a man a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. God forbid he should get it himself. How funny is that? And you got to parody your own story. And I um, sold it to Andrews McMeal, who do Calvin and Hobbes, and found a great illustrator. And um, it wasn't as successful as I had hoped it would be, but at least I got a chance to parody my own book. So that was that was fun. That is really fun. So it sounds like you get like a lot of inspiration just by kind of being aware of like what's going on around you, taking in like this, your surroundings, and then you just have a really creative mind. So you put your, your spin on it. Yeah, I'm lucky. I have one book called The Chicken Sisters. It's three sis- sisters who are chickens and they're old and they live together. And um, I got that idea because of, you know, me having being one of three three girls. Right. Uh, uh, that was a fun one to write. And obviously with the, let's see, oh, okay, here's another way I got an idea. I was out with friends. I don't have kids. I've always known that I, I wouldn't be a great mother, so I thought it would be better if I didn't. Um, I love being around them. I love writing for them. And it's so, so funny because so many people say, how can you write for kids if you don't have any? And I said, well, I'm, you know, have an arrested development of age eight or something. And I like it quiet and and clean, so I can write. But I was out with some friends who did have kids, and they were talking. The father said something. I drive, yeah, I drive Maddie to soccer in the morning, um, and we stop at uh, Starbucks on the way. And then the mother said, yes, and on Fridays I take him, um, but we stop at, I don't know, not Dunkin' Donuts, but that's the only thing that came to mind. Right. And to realize that they did, the parents were doing the same things, but they were doing them differently. And so I ended up having a series, it's called, they're flip books. So there are two books in one book and you turn it over. So it's what mommies do best, what daddies do best. And, um, and then at the end, it's but best of all, mommies can give you lots and lots of love. And you turn it over, and it's then you see the daddies. And Lynn Munsinger, who was my most favorite illustrator ever, um, we did the series. So it was mommies and daddies, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, sisters and brothers. And then there was going to be puppies and kittens, but they ended up just doing a, a traditional book, What Puppies Do Best. So that's how I came up with that idea. And then I have another series called The Jelly Beans, also with Lynn Munsinger. And they're five little girls. There's a dog, a, you know, a puppy, a kitten, a little bunny, a pig. 
and a cat and they all love each other but they're all very different and the series is one of them one of them is the big art bonanza or the big the big band and each one centers on each one of the characters uh you know nicole likes uh nicole the little cat likes to play soccer so it's called the big camp kickoff um and that was another one of my favorite things that's amazing yeah, I bet I would love to do a poll to see how many of our listeners have your, like how many books our listeners have of yours. I'm sure it's a lot. I know that they probably have the whole, if you give a mouse a cookie, like if, like you said, series, um, but I'm right. sure they have like a lot of your other books as well, because you, I mean, we are all about like the rhyming and um, sometimes like rote phrases or repetitive kind of lines within a book, which, you know, make a great children's story. And a lot of your books have that. I love rhyming, actually. Um, I do have another book that came to my head. Um, it's, all of a sudden, I get these little flashes of inspiration and I heard um, Cooper climbed out of his warm mama's pouch, took out a book and sat on the couch. And um, so I pictured a kangaroo uh, having her, having his mother read, read to him or sing to him. And it ended up being, again, with Lynn Munsinger, I've been so lucky. We've, got, we've done 12 books together. Um, and I ended up writing words to songs that parents already know like twinkle twinkle little star or row your boat or row your boat and they turned in i wrote lullabies to those songs and um that was i was always hoping that they would do a cd with it but it didn't happen well that was fun too yeah there's still a chance that sounds like a really lovely series i'm gonna have to look at that one that's great so I presented this question to you. I hope it wasn't a hard one to come up with, but I don't know. I was just thinking that, you know, throughout your career, you encounter different scenarios or different people that kind of solidify why you do what you do. So I was wondering what the best testimonial is that you've ever received. The best one I got was um, a mother of twins. They were five, I believe, at the time. And one of the sons was autistic on, you know, on the spectrum, but not really bad. And the other one was severe and he would not let them cut his hair. He didn't eat. He didn't talk. And she said when she read, if you give a mouse a cookie and the other book, his first word was cookie and he let them cut his hair to eat a blueberry muffin. So there was something about the the letter that also touched me is I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and the family lived in Jackson Heights, Queens, and that's where I used to go to the eye doctor when I was little. I started wearing glasses in kindergarten, so it was really close to home, you know, because I, I get a lot of uh, emails and, and letters from all over the country and internationally, too, as well. So this was quite the best thing I've ever heard. 
that's amazing. And especially like, I think for speech language pathologists, you know, oftentimes like we will be part of that process and helping like kids speak like the first word. So they can definitely relate in how impactful that statement is. And the fact that like, you know, that came from something that you created, that's really, and the fact that that mom like took the time to share that story with you, that's really special. Well, thank you for sharing that. And so I want to switch gears a little bit. I'm curious to know what a day in the life of Laura Nimroff looks like. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> I've been to well over 100 elementary schools, and that's one of the questions I get asked the most about you know my writing schedule or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I never know whether I should lie to the kids. I don't want to <laughs> lie, but I also don't want to tell them that I'm not, I really have, I'm not very disciplined, if you will. Uh, I don't have a schedule. When I'm on a deadline, then I'm pretty good. But my days vary so much. Let's see, the the, the one thing that's constant is every morning at 9.30, I have, um, except for Saturday, so every day except Saturday, I have somebody come to my house and we, I have boxing lessons. I have a boxing lesson, which I love. And that's about the only thing that's constant <laughs> in my schedule. It so depends. I mean, I travel a lot. I've been traveling a lot for um, I keynote speakers at conferences for educators. Uh, I go to book festivals. I'm I'm not traveling as much these days, but uh, over the years, between book tours and school visits and keynote speakers and conferences, etc. I have 600,000 frequent flyer miles on Delta. Wow. Yeah, so I really like staying home now. <laughs> Hopefully um, you get to use that for something fun, not work-related. I also read every night for at least an hour, sometimes two hours. You know, I get into bed and I read, and my favorite thing to read are um, memoirs and biographies. And I just read one about a, a journalist who every month went used a different self-help book and tried all you know did everything the self-help book told her to do you know dating and and money problems and getting rejected and everything and it was it, I I enjoyed that it's it's new. Um, what was that one called? Do you remember uh, the name? It's called Help Me. Okay, perfect. By Marianne, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, Power, P-O-W-E-R. So those are the two things that are definite pretty much every day. Um, Sometimes I have meetings uh, over the phone, you know, about the the cartoon or the animated show. Um, Depends on if I'm working on something or... Like right now, I'm not really working on a specific book at this point because I have a gigantic, really bad case of writer's block. So I've been kind of waiting for something to hit me. Um, I do spend a lot of time on Facebook with uh, CCI, which is Canine Companions for Independence. And they raise, they train dogs to become 
service dogs. So people with cerebral palsy or autism or um, not guide dogs for the blind, that they don't work with people who, have, who need um, seeing dogs, but they're called service dogs. And you know, they know over 50 commands. They can turn on the lights, turn them off. They can do laundry. They can pick up a credit card off the floor. Um, amazing, brilliant, noble, loyal, uh, beautiful animals. And they're either goldens, purebred golden, a pure lab, or a lab um, golden mix. And I met, this is leading me to, if, if it's okay to talk about my book, Raising a Hero. Yeah, I was going to say this is a perfect segue. Okay, so... Um, I had a website which needed some modernization, if you will, and uh, I don't know how, how many years ago it was, maybe five years ago, somebody referred a young guy to me, uh, young being, you know, I'm 60, 65 and he's 32, so I'm <laughs> very young. And I'd always wanted to write a book about a therapy dog. Well, it turned out Sean's younger brother um, when I met him, he was 25, has severe cerebral palsy, severe, really bad, and had a, a service dog at the time. It was Ellie. And we started talking about it, and I realized that this is the perfect time to do this book. And instead of trying to sell it to a publisher, we decided that Sean was going to start his own publishing company, and I was going to be Raising a Hero was going to be the first book. So I did some research. They have facilities um, all over the United States. They're one of the largest foundation organizations that raise service dogs. And the big campus, the, big, the main one is up in uh, Santa Rosa, and it's the Gene and Charles Schultz campus. And they're very heavily involved with them up there. And we went to puppy kindergarten and... I read a lot of books and met a lot of the dogs and watched the training and they're just mind boggling. <laughs> I was at one of the facilities and they have dormitories and um, where when the person is ready to be matched with their dog, they come up and they spend two weeks at the facility learning how to work with the dog and the family. And so we decided to raise money with the Kickstarter campaign. And we were going to do a video filmed at the campus down in San Diego, uh, the big one where uh, Sean's brother had his, got his dog, Ellie. And we paid for a videographer. And the day that we were going to do the video, I was so sick. Oh, oh my God. And every, there's a gigantic, gigantic, uh, like, great room, you know, where they have couches and TVs and things for the families to hang out. And I just went into one of the bedrooms. And I was just so sick. Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, I'm in, I'm in the, one of the bathrooms, you know, just like dying. And I hear somebody like trying to get in. And I keep going, I'm, I'm in here. There's somebody in here. And it turned out they were training a dog to open, to turn on the lights. Oh. So, so I could hear, you know, scraping against the door. Yeah. So the video, we raised um, $35,000 and wow. we needed the money to pay an illustrator. 
uh, you know, and have the book printed and distribution and, and, and all of that. And uh, the book is about a little boy named Sam raising a little puppy named Max to become a service dog. And we put, you know, we couldn't really afford a real illustrator because they, they made a lot of money. And we went on websites for colleges. I can't tell you how many illustrators I looked at online and nobody was interested. And we were just like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Sean said, why don't you just ask Lynn? And I said, I, I, she, gets, she gets a lot of money. We don't have that kind of money. And he goes, just ask her and see what she says. I was like, okay, can't, it couldn't hurt. And Lynn did it as um, a favor. She oh, wow. did it. Yeah, she didn't take any money, even though we kept sending her, you know, like, please take the money, take the money. <laughs> and so we printed the book up. Sean had the book printed and distributed. And um, it found its way onto Amazon. Uh, Sean put it on Amazon and it got 23 five-star reviews and um, publishes Barnes and Noble don't usually carry books that are non-traditionally published but they called Sean and asked if they could carry the book in the store and Sean put together a little bit of a book tour we did two, two little book tours we did one up in the Bay Area which is where the, uh, the Gina and Charles Schultz campus is and I got to meet her, and she's—I'm—I can't tell you how excited I was and how sweet she was. And at all the Barnes and Noble signings that we did, people with from CCI would bring their dogs, or they have puppy raisers. So a puppy raiser has the dog from eight weeks to about a year and a half, just basically training a, a dog, but with a little bit of added attention of having to wear a vest and little things that a service dog needs to know as opposed to a, just a family pet. Right. And then after a year and a half, they turn them into those campuses where they're trained for over a year and they learn how to turn on lights, how to do laundry, how to get something out of the refrigerator and then given to people um, who, who need the dogs for free. Um, it's an amazing process and these people are amazing. On the graduation, the puppy raisers turn over the puppy to the person getting the dog. And when you see the connection, it's, oh my goodness, it's amazing. So I'm, I just, I'm so excited about the book. And then a dollar from every book uh, is given to CCI. So it's been, it's been, something I'm very passionate about and going back to what I said, I spent time on Facebook with a lot of people who are puppy raisers or breeders. Um, and sometimes they'll put on a litter, a breeder will put on a litter and the little puppies and have almost like a puppy cam, you know, and show you little Aww. videos a day. And then you watch them grow. And then the day comes when they, they get handed over to a puppy raiser and they're just, these people are amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, your passion for it really, you know, you can tell. And it's just such an incredible cause. So the book is Raising a Hero. And I'll definitely be getting that one. And I'm sure our, many of our listeners will too, especially since it goes to such a great cause. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that book. It's, 
it means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah, I could see why. So I wanted to um, switch gears one more time. And I know that, you know, a lot of people, we have done an episode on like the process of book publishing because we've had people like reach out to us and just say, what was that process like? But I think that people would want to hear it from someone that's much more successful, you know, than we are and who is much more passionate about writing um, than we are. So I'm curious to know, what are the top five things that aspiring children's book authors or writers should focus on doing? If they want to be a writer, what should they start focusing on doing now? Well, the one thing I always suggest, if possible, is taking a class. Um, That's how I got started, that class that I took in children's writing, you know, the homework, Mm -hmm. um, getting published. And there are a lot of community colleges, and it, depending on you know where you live, if you're in a, lucky enough to be, let's say, near NYU or UCLA, or start browsing uh, for classes. The other thing is read a lot of children's books. Go to the library, and I, you know, you can read. You can only read just so many at a Barnes and Noble sitting there before you. <laughs> But it's really important to see what's out there now. Um, And then the one thing I always suggest is if somebody has an idea, is to make sure it hasn't already been done because it's happened to me. Um, I get this idea. I was driving home one day, and I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I was thinking of party, potty animal, you know, party animal, potty animal. (laughs) look so well and I wouldn't put my name on it but and I just started I thought it was a great idea and I came home and sure enough it's already been done and it depends on how often it's been done but something that's so obvious uh, doesn't warrant uh, pursuing it so that's one of the most important things Mm -hmm. as well Um, there are some real believe it or not there are some really good books on writing and illustrating for children reference books and um, all kinds of books in the and you can pick out from the library or buy or whatever. And then the other thing I highly recommend is joining it's SCBWI so it's Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators SCBWI I think it's $60 a year and you get a monthly newsletter with all kinds of amazing information, articles, advice. Um, they also list a lot of, if there are workshops or um, conferences, if somebody who really wants to write for children and can afford to go to one of the conferences, highly recommend it. A lot of them have editors and agents at the conferences. They have breakout sessions. Um, you get to meet other, you get to meet children's authors and illustrators. So that's, that's a really good thing to do. And the one thing that people always think is, I hear this all the time. Um, I, I tell, I, I have this story that I tell my daughter every night about a dinosaur who's blah, blah, blah. And just because your kid likes it doesn't mean it's going to sell. So, um, yeah. So you have to keep that in mind. And like I said before, 
don't give up. Um, if you get it turned down, start looking at what the re rejection letters say. Some of them will be just generic. And if you get one that has some advice, then take it and do what they ask. Rewrite it and send it back. Um, if you're lucky enough to have an editor who responds to your work, then that's a great, a great thing. Also, um, submission policies vary from uh, publisher to publisher, and a lot of things have changed since I started publishing. So I don't, I'm not up with all the latest guidelines, but I do know that some. Publishers will take unsolicited manuscripts. That means they're not submitted by an agent. And then if you notice that a lot of the publishers are only looking at things submitted by agents, then you should obviously try to get an agent. And one thing an agent would, likes to see is that you have more than one idea. So if you have um, a couple of ideas for children's books, that's great, or a series, or um, I don't really know a lot about the young adult novel market, but from what I've heard, it's um, they usually need to read the whole the whole book or at least the first chapter and an outline for the rest of the story. Wow, that is such great advice. Uh, I didn't even know about the SCBWI, so I think people will find that to be really helpful. And I mean, all of those tips are really great. And I don't think that previous like. We know we've had maybe one or two previous authors and they didn't mention any of those. So I think those are all excellent tips. Good. So I hope we can end this with something fun. Um, we created a game called If You Give an Author a Cookie. I did send you the questions ahead of time, uh, uh -huh. but I'm going to ask you to pick five of your favorite cookies and then I'll ask the question based on that cookie. So I'll read through the cookies right now, and then you can tell me your top five. So it's, the choices are chocolate chip, peanut butter, Samoas, Thin Mints, Thumbprint, Oatmeal Raisin, Sugar Cookie, and Gingerbread. And if I could list many, many more, I would because I'm a huge cookie fan. <laughs> so what's your top five? Two. As a matter of fact, I bought a small pack of those double-stuffed Oreos last night. Oh, yum. And Okay, so let's start with Samoas. Okay. And the little boy with autism that I visit every Saturday. So I was there yes, uh, this past Saturday. God, it doesn't feel like Monday. That's the thing when you don't have like a specific place to go every day. You're not quite sure what day it is. Okay, so Saturday I went over and his older sister is a Girl Scout and she was selling Girl Scout cookies. And so I bought two boxes of Samoas. When I was a Girl Scout, this is how old, you know, when I was a Girl Scout, you know, that old... <laughs> Cookies were 50 cents a box, and oh, now they're $5, or there are two new kinds that are $6 a box. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so I bought, I, Thin Mints are usually my favorite, but I've, I had tried a Samoa a while back, and so I bought, you know, I felt obligated because I'm sitting there with the family and bought, bought two boxes, and as soon as I left the house, I ripped open one of the boxes and ate half of it, half of the cookies. <laughs> oh my goodness, that sounds like me. <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. I love these. Oh, and then you're like, wait. So that's the thing, like when it's Girl Scout cookie time, like I have to run away from them because I will buy like all the cookies. And it's that time of the year right now. 
And the funny thing is, oh, right. And the funny thing is, is that now they're making the Thin Mints vegan. Oh, okay. Well, it's funny because a lot of people think that vegan like means it's actually like healthier for you. And right. it's like, nope, it's the same. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I've got Samoas. Do you want to add Thin Mints? Thin Mints. Okay. Chocolate chip. All right. What were the other ones? So we have peanut butter, thumbprint, oatmeal raisin, sugar cookie, and gingerbread. Oh, peanut butter. Yum. And one more. Oatmeal raisin. All right. Perfect. All right. So I'll start with Samoa's. What's your favorite city to visit? Oh, that is so hard. I have to say more than one. I just love... Um, New Orleans, San Francisco, Chicago, London, and Paris. Those are all wonderful cities. Yeah, I'm very much into history and, and, and architecture. Okay. Yeah, I mean, those are all great cities for that. That's wonderful. All right. Number two, Thin Mints. Tell me a fun fact that people might not know about you. Um... Okay. Well, I that there's a question if you could do anything you wanted and know you wouldn't fail, what would it be? Mhm. Yeah. I would be I would want to be a stand-up comedian. Oh my gosh. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Um chocolate chip. So you're stranded on a desert island. What three items would you take with you? Okay. I would have Mike. I would have Henry and a dog that I would have and food for all of us. That's really smart. And I love that you brought your two like furry companions, your future uh -huh. furry companion that you're looking for right now. And then of course, Henry, your current cat. Yes. <laughs> That's great. All right. Number four is peanut butter. So what's your favorite dessert? Um, probably ice cream. Do you have like a favorite flavor? And chocolate chip. Yum. That's my favorite too. Oh, is it? Oh God. Yeah. I love it. Actually, I've gotten into mochi ice cream lately. I don't know if you've ever had that. Yeah. The little, the Japanese ones. Yes. As a matter of fact, that's so <clears throat> coincidental. I was just looking at them last night when I was in the freezer section looking for some ice cream. Oh yeah. It's really good. I like the green tea one. If you're feeling adventurous. That sounds good. Definitely. <laughs> All right, the last one, oatmeal raisin. Tell a valuable lesson learned from being an award-winning author. Although you've given so many great lessons so far. Um, well, you know, one of the lessons I've learned, and I, I don't really ever talk about this, but that the children's book industry is business. And there are things that happen in regular business that aren't so children book like, mm -hmm. um, you know, negotiating contracts and, and people trying to do this with your books and, and 
all kinds of things that aren't as sweet and pleasant as you would imagine being uh, in the in children's books. I would always think of that, like in the movies, screen, you know, script writers or novelists or journalists writing books. But you always think children's books are so sweet and cute. Um, and that's actually a, a part of it. That, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't even, I mean, we realize that because that we are going through that as well, but it's a great point to bring up, you know, that I don't think people think about. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So I'm really sad that this is like coming to an end. If people want to connect with you, what is the best like social media platform website so that they can get in touch with you? Well, they can go on. I have a Facebook page. It's with Laura Numeroff. Um, I tweet. I have a Twitter um, heavy following. And my my website, uh, lauranumeroff.com, is not as... I get reached by that. From, I get fan mail and visitor uh, visit requests uh, on it. I am no longer doing school visits. But I am doing um, keynote conference um, uh, appearances, uh, book festival appearances. And I live in Los Angeles, so if there are any fun book people out there who want to have lunch, just let me know. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. I remember I was like out there recently, and you're like, hey, we could do the interview in person. I was like, really? (laughs) That would be so cool. Um, That would be great. Where? Yeah, oh, that was too bad. Yeah, maybe another time. Yes, yes. Well, this has been more than I could have even imagined. You're so lovely. It's nice to like put a voice to a Twitter account. And um, thank you for coming on and sharing your like wisdom and telling us more about your books. And I look forward to continuing to follow along on your journey. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really am very honored. And and it's been so much fun. You're right. I don't want to hang up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Until next time.